Through the action, it, it involves adultery. Through the action, he brings us to a point at the end where the minister, who's in a serious sin, does something that radically, is radically puts him out. He's a minister of this community. He represents everything Protestant in that world. He's implicated, he, he the father of the illegitimate child, Hester, Hester, and he conceived a child. She has to bear the burden of it. She has to wear a scarlet letter with an A, marking adultery, her sin. Dimsdale, the father, doesn't. He's the minister. And he, he won't come out. He can't admit it. It would be too great a shame and a great horror to that community. Right. At the very end, he does something that answers that whole way of dealing with things that radically transforms it. Right. Hmm. Turn your recorder on. Sorry? Turn your recorder on. It's done. Um, thanks. So Melville's Moby Dick is, is I, I've written it. Melville's Moby Dick, I believe, is, is Melville's exorcism of Calvin. I'm saying that really strongly. I, I, that probably won't mean much to any of you, even though you guys have read Moby Dick, but I, I think he's, he's going to something at the heart of Calvinism that most people get close to. Hawthorne's doing the same thing. He's going to the heart of something Protestant in Scarlet Letter, and radically transforming it. Both of those men grew up Protestants. There's, both of them in those works are leaving a Protestant world. So I came away to thinking, do I do this or not? I can't do it. We're going to do the Iliad, the Odyssey, and the Divine Comedy, um, but we're going to jump Shakespeare, and when we get to the modern world, I want to do Moby Dick and Scarlet Letter with you guys, because I think it's, you're going to learn things about your faith that you did not know before, and you're going to understand something about our American culture that I don't think you understood before. And I'm even going to go farther. That culture has not changed in essence since its beginning. It still marks our this black-white mindset. You can't watch anything that's going on politically today without seeing the same thing. I know that probably seems outlandish, if we're together, wait and let me make the case on it when we get there. But anyway, I want to do those two works with you. So just know that, that there's a change, but it's, it's down the road some. I want to get the epics underneath this. But um, in my mind, even though I, not, I have not looked at um, Melville as the high point, putting Melville and Hawthorne together will be a high point, even though we're going to go beyond it into modernity. But, that will be a high point because it's going, to be, it's going to speak so directly to everybody's faith and fundamental differences between the Catholic and Protestant faiths. Okay? So um, I'm sort of excited. I'm looking, to me it's amazing. I'm just, honestly, and nobody, the scientists, the sociologists, the anthropologists, the politicians, nobody gets close to what those two poets are doing. If you've learned to have any appreciation for Shakespeare, just know that those two men are doing the same thing for America, mid-19th century. Okay? So, sorry. I've just been so taken by this book and what it's doing, so. Anyway, so we'll finish Anthony and Cleopatra, and then next week we start the Iliad, okay? Can, can you pull out the poem, the Dun or the Psalms?
last week, for those of you who have Damascus know that the, um, the reading was from Isaiah and John the Baptist. And Isaiah, Isaiah was calling people to that high mountain, the holy place, the New Jerusalem. And um, as a part of that call, he was urging all of us to um, um, fill up the valleys and, and lower the mountains. What he was doing was saying, make straight the path. That the great effort of our life in Advent, going to Christmas, is to level the way, to make a way for Christ. So metaphorically, what he's saying is, um, get the despair, the low things, out of the way. Get the high things, the things that we make too important, more important than Christ, out of the way. That we're, 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 we're struggling to straighten out our own lives to prepare for Christ. So to get rid of those imbalances, you know, whatever we're doing with our lives, so that the lion and the lamb can sit down, the plowshares or the swords will be turned into plowshares, that all those things that make us one with the world, um, we, we take away their power to make way for Christ. So Advent is a time of um, waiting. We're asked to practice virtues, overeating, overdrinking, too much sex, too much coveting, too much wealth, um, to deny ourselves in small ways, it's not, it's not Easter Lent, it's deny ourselves in small ways just as a practice and learn how to wait. So instead of giving in to stuff so easily to back off, restrain ourselves, hoping so that we can grow at home. Um, and John backed that up pretty severely. I mean, he, well, the words he had for the Pharisees and the Sadducees were really sharp. Um, he said he's there to baptize her. He's there to baptize people, but he's there to call everybody to repentance, to repair, to prepare for Christ. So the great call in Advent from John last week, and he's always there every Advent, every Advent he's there. It's to call, he lost his head. You know that, here, cut it off. Um, he prepared the way, so his great call to us is to repent, to see this as a time of repentance. Um, so I, I just tried to pick a, um, a song that would be appropriate for this season. Um, so today I just I would like to read Psalm um, 122 because it's about the ascent of this mountain. It's a struggle always to climb a mountain. It asks something of us. Um, because it speaks to the struggle that we want to take on correcting ourselves, making the effort to deny ourselves, never easy um, to try to make ourselves more Christ-like. So, Psalm 122. I rejoice when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And now our feet are standing within your gates, Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city, walled round about. There the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord. As it was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There are the thrones of justice, the thrones of the house of David. For the peace of Jerusalem, pray. May those who love you prosper. May peace be within your ramparts, prosperity within your towers. For the sake of my brothers and friends, I say, peace be with you. For the sake of the house of the Lord, our God, I pray for your good. So, 
In the next week, let us um, actively see ourselves as climbing to this new Jerusalem, this place of holiness, and offer peace to all those around us on our way. Okay. Okay. Um, what are you looking for? That stool. Do you mind? What stool? It's back here, Doc. That stool. The little one? Yeah, I don't know that I'll. I've developed back problems the last year, and it's. Okay, um, like just a couple of words on, thanks, thanks. A couple of words on um, what I'm gonna call first principles, just to keep these in our mind, keep them in front of us because it's easy to lose track of them. One of the most important principles behind everything we've been doing today follows St. Thomas when he said, the most important thing for every one of us is to see what's there. Not to read for our own ideas, because in that sense we belong to the Jewish Old Testament ethos of things. To, to read for the law, to justify ourselves, to find what we want. Um, we're supposed to work hard at seeing what's there. And we all know from Plato's cave that so often it's easy for us to get, to take the appearances of what's in front of us for reality when in fact there's something deeper that reality is multi-level. We know this from the prophets. Prophecies basically is a thing seeing what's up close to us, a thing right in front of us, um, and exposing something at a distance, that there's something more. So prophecy means bringing far things up close, learning to see them at work here. Do we see them? The empiricist will not, because the empiricist says, what's true is only what's true to my senses. Do we really see what's there? underneath the appearances. And the poets have been showing us that there's often more going on than we realize. So first principle, we are asked to see what's there, not to twist things to make them what we want, not to justify ourselves. It's a danger for all of us. Um, I talked about the emotions last week. I gave you St. Thomas's outline um, because it, to me, I think we take our emotions so much for granted. What St. Thomas shows us is the emotions have a nature. Remember, there's two trajectories. Love is the beginning of everything. The first motion of the soul, according to Thomas, the Catholic faith, the first motion of the soul is love, desire. And the ultimate end is to rest in the object of that desire. What's the final object of that desire? God. But intermediately it can be a husband, a wife, a child, yeah, whatever it is. But we were born to love. We were created to love and be loved. And the ultimate end of our love is joy, rest. The other trajectory begins with hate because it has to do with those emotions that are called into play to resist those things that threaten our love. We went through that, right? So the, the one beginning with love and ending in rest, the other one beginning with hate and ending in sorrow. Those things that will take away the things that we love. When we lose a child, when we lose a loved one or a job, you know, um, we feel sorrow. It's natural because our heart longs for those things. Um, 
But I want to remind everybody, love, so love is the first motion of the soul. Love as a supernatural virtue has its source beyond the natural order. It comes from God. So we have natural loves. I mean, a child can love something long before he knows he can love milk, you know, or food, or coloring books, or those are natural things. But the love that God offers us is supernatural. So as Catholics, we're practiced to do two things. We're asked to do things. We're asked to practice the natural virtues. Those are virtues within our control. The four natural virtues, which the pagans identified, are prudence, justice, temperance, fortitude, or courage. We're supposed to work at being prudent, temperate, to learn to make our desires temperate. Just, courageous. You know, those are things within our reach. Those are things we're, we're supposed to work at being virtuous. Because we believe that it's not only good, the way the pagans did, but we believe that in doing that, we open a door for Christ. Is there anything that Christ did that was not virtuous? Absolutely not. He took on our human nature. Everything he did was virtuous. But what he did do was offer us supernatural virtues that are beyond our power. They're gifts to us from God. Is everybody clear? This is so basic. We are asked to practice the natural virtues, but we do it in the belief that God will offer supernatural virtues. What are the supernatural virtues? Faith, hope, charity. So the natural virtues are prudence, justice, temperance, fortitude, courage. Those are things we want to strive to do. If we're not very courageous, what do we do? We try to work at being more. If we're not temperate, if we drink too much, we're asked to restrain our drinking. Those are things we can, using our powers of reason, we can do. The supernatural gifts are gifts offered by God. They're not under our control. They're only, they only come into our lives insofar as we're open to receiving them. That means our stance towards them is humility to open it. But here's the, here's the point I want to stress because we've been talking about the natural virtues in poetry, the, 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 the action of tragedy and the action of, of comedy. Here's the important thing to remember. Um, they're different from the, the natural virtues in this way. Love for Christ is only love when we have no reason for loving. Did Christ came here because we deserved it? Love is only, this is the supernatural, I'm not talking about natural loves now. Because what we've been dealing with in the plays are two orders, and I've been pressing hard, you know, that, to suggest that what Shakespeare's showing us in all these plays is something transcendent entering the world. Portia, Helena, even Othello, I believe. I know some of you don't feel that way, but, and I'm going to try to make that case here with Anthony and Cleopatra. That love is only love when we have no reason for loving. That's what Christ asks us to do. Um, when our husband is a jerk, for the wives that are here, we're still asked to love them. Does that mean enable them? The whole call of the Old Testament is justice. Absolutely not. But it, it does mean being resourceful in that love to try to help your husband become better, or vice versa, a wife. Yeah? Faith is only real when you have no reason for holding it. Hope is only real when things are hopeless. That's what those supernatural virtues are. We're asked to have hope 
when we have no reason for hoping anymore. Is that clear? Or they mean nothing. We're in our world saying, I'm only going to love him when I, get, when I get my way. Or when things are going nice. The supernatural virtues hold us to our place because they're safe. There's a God helping us. We're supposed to do those things when we have every reason not to do them. Because we know if we're back in the world of reason, we're going to do them for ourselves. Christ didn't come here because we deserved it. Is everybody okay? So what, what we're watching with Shakespeare, I believe, is Shakespeare dealing with the natural order exactly as St. Thomas does. But he's dealing with it in a way to make us aware that there's something else going on in this world. Do we see it? Are we aware of it? Can we feel it? Do we see it? Is everybody okay? Any questions before I go to the, to the play? These are, these are just sort of fundamental things that first principles that people get lost, you know, they lose sight of, but they're, it's important always to hold on to them because it's so easy to lose sight of first principles when we get so caught up in the world. Any questions about? I have, this may be a really shallow question. A what? Dumb question. No, hold on, go back. There, I just, I can't tell you how much that bothers me. There are no dumb questions, particularly by people who say, this may be a dumb question. That's a good question. It's not dumb at all. God, sorry if I came out hard. I just, you know, going in, in all my life as a teacher, one of the great lessons for me, I, I can't tell you how strongly I believe in this. So um, if there was an edge on what I said, part, um, the, some of the, the pro, so much of the greatest learning that's gone on for me as a teacher is being in a classroom when I, you know, done a presentation. We spend far more time discussing in a classroom. I can't hear because we have so little time, but... And students will ask questions off the wall, and whenever they did what might have seemed stupid to another student, it always put me in a position of having to answer it. And so often, it made me aware that that's not what I saw, because, of course, I'm holding the truth of all these things, and the students don't know that. Um, it always forced me to answer it. And when I did, I always found myself learning something that added to what, you know, I mean, my background as a teacher, I already knew. So I feel really strongly about that. I just don't think they're dumb questions that very often that what people think are dumb make openings. If, if, you're, if you're really engaging in a talk, um, if you're open, amazing things happen. Um, the answer to your question was not dumb. Um, I, it's, I mean, how do I know? This, you know, but, but my, my educated answer to that is um, Shakespeare had an extraordinary grasp of everything that came before him. There's not a, when I look at his works, I can find Plato, Aristotle, you name it, um, Augustine, St. Thomas, Boethius, um, Homer, Virgil, they were all in him. And he had enough of a training in classical philosophy, so they would say Plato and Aristotle, that he would have had a knowledge of those things. If you look at his writing, he never expresses them in terms of ideas. He's not making an expository argument, premise, you know. He's, he's doing a play. He's just written. He had all the great poets behind him, too. He's writing plays. 
But there's no way he could have written those plays without having read those things and brought them to what he was doing. So there will always be a depth. He will see things that I think most of us don't see when he's, you know, like all, just for example, all the references, I'm going to get to them in a second, all the, all the allusions to the apophatic absence, vacancies, you know. If you read his plays and you, you read a play like this and you, you suddenly find yourself coming across those terms all the time, you, you have to say, that's not a coincidence. If you look at the Venetian, we did at Merchant of Venice, if you look at the, the references to um, money breeding or the body's not worth anything, you know, Shylock's word, if you go through the, the interest in law or the two ways of reading law, the Christian and the Jewish, when you go through all of that, you, 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 you can't come away and say, this is all accident. It's so peculiar to that regime, and he had the language and the grasp of the nature of that regime to get it to us. And he did that with so many regimes. It's one of the reasons I believe he was Catholic. And I don't know of anybody saying that that way, but he could not have written the plays that he did on every one of those regimes and done justice to the particularity of that regime if he didn't have a grasp of the most universal things and could work them out in particular moments. That's an extraordinary... Sorry? And that's what we hope to do is to be able to grasp that ourselves and see the world through that prism. Not prism. I mean, I hope. You know, I mean, that's, to me, that's... that's and I just think he's, he's such an extraordinary person. I can teach this and struggle to live it you know, but it's, it's, I know you all know this, it's one thing to know it in your head. It's a very different thing to live this in your life because that asks a lot of you. When I think about him as a man trying to live out what he saw, I mean, I, I'm just amazed at him, at what he's done. Um, but I don't think he just sort of consciously, you know, mapped it out, you know, and then, but the fact that everything is so consistent to each play and each regime is distinguished from other regimes and he's so well at doing that and getting it in language. Or stop just for a second. Name a poet who could create a character like Portia, Bassanio, Anthony, um, Othello, Iago, Desdemona. Each in the, in the regime involved in an action that makes clear the nature of that regime. That he, he could create a, a person like Desdemona so believable to us, Portia, Anthony, give Anthony the language that he does when he's losing his identity with Rome, to, to watch that slip from him, you know? Who does that? I, I mean, I look at that and think, God, what, what an extraordinary depth of vision and the technical means to accomplish it. How many people can do that? You know, it's just... It's just a rare Dante. I mean, I, I, think, I think Dante and Shakespeare and Bach are the three greatest artists who have ever lived. You know, what they do with their medium, and it just, to me, is extraordinary. Um, that was not a dumb question. It was not. Um, okay. Um, very briefly. Remember, Two things that I want you to remember looking, we're just, we're going to, I'm going to do this briefly because I want to, I want to get through Anthony and Cleopatra tonight. Um, I know that there were differences among us about Helen and Bertram, but a couple things I want to remind you of. Um, Helen and Bertram, she had this third eye. That was the way she was described. Presumably, if that means anything in the play, 
It means she can see things other people can't. She has a depth of seeing, and I think if we keep that in mind, it makes it hard for us to dismiss this guy. Clearly, he's a jerk. I mean, you know, he's, um, what's the word I was looking for? He's scoundrel, whatever you want to. But she sees something in him. And it, I, I think when we read him, we, we, sh we should not look past Christ in his coming here to offer us the love that we didn't deserve. Understanding the transformative power of that love because we live in a culture that's a commercial, a commercial republic. We always think if we work hard for something, we should be rewarded. Who's gonna love somebody in this culture freely? Particularly when he's a jerk. I mean, lots of Americans say, get away, I'm done with you. She didn't. And there's so many things that she says in her speeches that give um, credibility, veracity to you know, what she says. She has a good heart and good mind. So remember that. Um, and remember too, when you're, when you're thinking about the causes, because I thought, I, Stephanie, I've already said, I think I said it to you, that I thought your categories last week were really, truly amazing. What happened with them, <laughs> I've already said that. So anyway, I thought they were amazing. Just you, I mean, there was real, there was, you set it up beautifully. Remember that when you're thinking about Helena, so much of what happens to her is something she has to learn to work with because it's given to her. She's in a culture in which she loves a man and the class differences make it impossible for her to fulfill that love. So Shakespeare's reminded us of the transcendent character of love, that it's not bound by class distinctions. I, I tried to emphasize, emphasize that when we went through the lines because she even said that. How can you love like likes? You know, there's a class difference saying this, this man is better than you are because he belongs to a higher class than you do? So what he's showing us is a transcendent quality to love, that love can do things that the world doesn't understand. And whatever we think about what goes on there, we can't forget that what she does doesn't just um, fulfill his conditions and the conditions that were put on her, because she didn't cause those. She has, to, she has to work with what's given to her. She can't recreate the world. I mean, as a figure of love, she comes in to deal with a world that's full of discriminations, disorders. Everything about the French world is in decline. We know that it's in decay. Kings dying, right? So whatever you say about her, it's important to remember that there, what Shakespeare's showing us is a quality of love capable of overcoming that. The final effect of what she did is not what she intended. It's a byproduct of what she did. She breaks down those class divisions. She didn't set out to do that. She's not an activist. She loved him. And what we see is what the product of what she did was to ease the hardness of those lines. You know, how implacable they were. And how much pride there was behind them. Bertram's response to her when, when, he, when she had the choice was, I don't want this woman. She's beneath me. The arrogance of that. There was an awful lot to overcome in that man. Anyway, just hold on to that, because the point I want to just emphasize here is that Shakespeare is so often showing us the very worst of ourselves, Iago, Bertram, Parolles, but he's also showing us that there is this extraordinary capacity that human beings have, particularly with respect to their loves. Portia, Helena, okay? Um, so, I think just a quick review, and then I, what I'd like to do is um, 
Mary, give me one second if you can, just to um, underscore something I think everybody already knows. Um, remember the, the, the two plots um, in comedy, we start with um, bad fortune and good to good. And in um, tragedy, we start with good fortune and go to bad. Every play, typically, um, takes this form. Every play starts out with a problem. In Anthony and Cleo, we, we, Cleopatra, we know that it's Anthony's divided. He's in Egypt, he shouldn't be there, he should be back in Rome. That's the problem, that there's something wrong opening a play. Every play goes from an opening problem. In, in Merchant of Venice, it's Antonio sad, something's wrong. We can go through every play and say, here's the opening problem. Early on, we, we come across a complication, whatever it is, borrowing the money from Shylock. Here, it's um, the, um, the meeting between the triumvirs and um, Pompey. There's a problem. They're going to go to war. They meet to overcome it. And no sooner do they meet, gone. It's gone. So typically in a Shakespearean play, and it's, it's true of music. If you watch, if you watch, if you read St. Thomas's articles, opening problem, opening question, these seem to be the right answers. It complicates things. Thomas will say, um, "No, I say that." Here's the truth. You give a principle, and then you resolve every one of the questions. Every play does that. Here's an opening problem, here are the complications, it reach, the play reaches a climax, and it's resolved. Every comedy moves from good fortune, bad fortune, some problem, to a good. So some problem is overcome. What's the ultimate end of comedy? Joy and wonder. In every comedy, we're left with this unexpected sense of joy, of fulfillment to our desires, it's this thing about love, and wonder, wonder. When Merchant of Venice ends, what happens? Antonio's ships all came back. There's no way you can reach the ending of that, particularly if you The husbands did the stupid things they did. They gave up those rings, and the women are going to take them apart. The wonder is that it ended so peacefully. I'm being facetious here, but you, you can't read that play without being left with a sense of wonder, of gratitude, of goodness has been realized. Tragedy is the opposite. It's that other trajectory. It begins with good fortune and suddenly bad things happen. And it ends in a rest. It's not, modern play might be different because you know that modern, lots of modern artists believe the world is absurd. That there is no such thing as rest or joy. Or, but in good tragedy, traditional tragedy, the, the play always ends in a good. The, the injustice, the disorder has been answered. It's been overcome. The ground has been laid for a new foundation, a restoration, a recovery, a new order. So every comedy ends in joy and wonder. Every tragedy ends in sorrow. There's that second or that second trajectory. You all following me with those two trajectory emotions? It ends with sorrow, great loss. Could be Oedipus's mother, father, his own eyes. Uh, Desdemona, her death. You know? Every tragedy ends in a sorrow and um, a sense of awe and dread. Because 
All great tragedies take the tragic hero to the point of the next life. And we always feel like we're standing on the edge of the next life. Othello, aware that no human justice is going to take care of this. The, the love that he had was too great. He stands answerable to a higher order. That, that's true for Lear, it's true for Macbeth, it's true for Hamlet. And Hamlet has that speech at the end when he's contemplating if it's going to happen, it's, it is. If it's not, it is. There's a providence in the fall of the sparrow. What's the most important thing? The readiness is all. Whatever God's going to ask, we're supposed to be ready. Every great tragedy drops us off at some point where the cost of evil is experienced, it's felt, it's overcome. So a good has been at work, otherwise it could have never answered the disorder. And we're left with a sense, remember, pity and fear are gone. Those are the arresting emotions, pity and fear are gone. What replaces them? This sense of um, awe, wonder, and something like dread, that there's something more that, we, that we're answerable to. So all of the emotions, but both tragedies and comedies end in rest. The disorders don't continue in tragedy, they're, they're answered. So at the end of a tragedy, even if we have to experience painful things, we come out okay. The, the, the sins have been answered. Okay? Mary, I'm sorry, you had a question. Oh, no, it was a comment about all. Okay, let me, I want to quickly go through. Um, I said um, last week and the week before that, um, that if we look at, at Anthony and Cleopatra, one of the great themes of that play is um, a tension between Rome with Julius Caesar as the leader and something strange that's happening between between Rome and Egypt. Anthony at the beginning of the play is divided. Half of his loyalties are with Rome, half of his loyalties are with Cleopatra. That's the division. When the play opens, that's a problem. He's not back in Rome doing what Caesar's doing. Caesar's angry at him. He's got divided loyalties. So already we find a man whose love is separating him from his regime, his political identity. That's not a small thing because remember, Anthony's known as the greatest soldier in Rome. Nobody can compare. Caesar knows he can't fight with him. Anthony's identity has been absolute. He's a Roman, he's a soldier. The beginning of the play, he's not in Rome, he's with Cleopatra in Egypt. Those are the opening lines. And remember in that opening line, that exchange between them, I said, that was, I think, one of the most perfect examples of the uh, apophatic that I know of. You all remember that, right? She says, tell me how much. We don't hear those words. And when he answers, he says, you can't set a limit on it. It will take a new heaven and a new earth. You, we can't, that's not, we don't see that either. That's another apophatic moment. We know things by their absence. Shakespeare makes that really clear in the opening of the play. Something's happening in this world right now. Okay? So one of the trajectories of the action, the play, is from Caesar to the end. If we look at Caesar's action, it's a rising action. He never fails, never fails. He always comes out on top. So he's an image of justice, success, strategy. So all the masculine qualities as they're presented in the play. 
Um, but if we look at what happens between Anthony and Cleopatra, we watch a couple, both of whom gradually get pulled away from their regime. She is a queen of Egypt, he is this great soldier of Rome. Okay? And one of the questions we have to ask is, is this just the action involving them um, negative? Is it defeat? Or is something going on with them that the, that the world doesn't understand, that, that Caesar won't completely understand? Okay? Now here, I want to give some examples just to show you how important wars are, this question of justice is thrown. At the end of the, towards the end of the play, when Caesar's in battle with Anthony and Cleopatra, he says, universal justice is at hand. And we know that the Pax Romana is right around the corner. That as soon as Caesar defeats Anthony and Cleopatra, the gates of war will be closed. The Pax Romana will begin. It's that long period of, in, in history called um, the Peace of Rome. The wars are settled. They're still minor words, but nothing compared to what's going on before that. So, when the play opens, we know that a civil war has just been put to rest. That Brutus and Cassius killed Julius Caesar, and Anthony and Octavius Caesar took revenge and defeated them in their battle. So, a civil war has just taken place. Okay? Now, here's what happens in this play. Fulvia goes to war against Lucius, Anthony's brother. They make up because they have a, um, a common quarrel against Caesar, and they go to battle, they go to war with him. So, remember, why does Anthony get called back to Rome? Because his wife just died. She died in battle. So the battles are, they don't stop in this play. Um, so, um, um, Labinus is sent to Parthia, to take vengeance on, um, on somebody killing Crassius, which is, has to do with the civil war before this play begins. Pompey's gaining power in Sicily is because he is, that Caesar wants to take him down. So the first complication of the play is the triumvirs meet, Anthony, Cleopatra, and Lepidus, to make peace with Pompey, and they do. Okay, so presumably a civil war is averted. You know that the because Anthony and, or, and Cle or Caesar are at odds, they want to find a way to make peace between them, and the solution to that is that Anthony marry Caesar's sister, Octavia. And he does, thinking that will settle things. And that gives us a view of the way Romans look at women, too. Okay? Um, but no sooner do they go home than they get the news that Caesar and Lepidus went to war against Pompey immediately after they made a treaty. And as soon as they defeated him, Caesar concocts these charges against um, Lepidus and puts him in jail. He's going to execute him. Caesar's now ruler of the world. The battles don't stop. So now hold on, because this this goes to say sorry, say your name again. Carol. 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 Carolyn. Carolyn. I'm sorry, Carolyn. Um, you know what did what did Shakespeare know? We don't have biographical evidence saying he's Catholic. In my mind, there's not a question that he's Catholic. Does a Catholic believe that all injustices can be answered from within the terms of the world alone? No, cannot. Does Christ himself do what should be done in order to ensure 
that every battle that we fight will have a just outcome and justice will reign forever afterwards. No. And if we're, if we're, if we're confined to time itself, there's nothing in time that can redeem us. If time's our orientation, we're stuck. That's our belief. It's only because something comes into time from outside of time that time can be redeemed. Because we're just going to continue to commit sins. So Christ has asked us to bring a supernatural love into this order to answer it. Will it end all wars here? No. Because we know from Christ that the ultimate end, the ultimate peace, is of another kingdom. And we know the way, the way to justice and peace here, according to him, is a cross. It's death. That's at the center of faith. So on one level, Shakespeare's showing us these people who believe that justices can be answered. Civil wars were put to rest before the play began. The whole play is full of civil wars. Act 3 begins with um, one of the generals coming and saying they just took vengeance on the Parthians. So in the very middle of the play, there's a war going on. Or, or, sorry, an injustice that was answered. Does that mean it's going to be put to rest? No. Do the people believe that, that it's going to do that? Yes, they do. Caesar believes that he can bring this universal peace if he only has the men to do it, the strength and the power. We can achieve this. So there's the rising action. That's the rising action that marks Caesar's actions in the play. Is everybody okay? But next to that is this love relationship between um, Anthony and Cleopatra. Okay. Now, here are... I, I'm going to... If you can just take the lines down, because I don't want to take the time. Because I want to... I want to... I want to try to leave... Sorry, I want to try to leave time for questions time. I'm going to give you just some... These are just a few examples of what I've been calling the apophatic, Okay. 1390, Act 1, Scene 390. Act 1, Scene 390. I'm just going to give you the. You don't, you don't have to just write them down because it's just. I'm going to go through this. Sorry. Um, um, and, or Cleopatra's talking about Anthony. She says, Oh, my oblivion, that Anthony is her oblivion. He's not there. Without him there, she's nothing, is what she's saying. Okay? Oh, my oblivion. There's the empathetic. Without him, she doesn't exist. 155, I might sleep out this great gap of time. When the one you love is not there, it's like a big gap takes place. Caesar, or another, Act 1, Scene 2, Line 122, she's good being gone. Act 2, Scene 2, Line 217, this is that passage I, I think I read to you, didn't I, when Enobarbus is describing to the soldiers, Cleopatra, when she's on the barge approaching the city and it's described as if a, a vacancy had taken over. Didn't I read that? Oops. Did, yeah. Um, she said it, um, it's as if the air came out and made a, a vacancy a gap in nature. That everybody left the town to go watch her because she's so extraordinarily beautiful. Anthony's waiting for her. When Octavia returned home after, after Caesar had gone to battle and Anthony turned her back, um, Caesar says of her, Octavia returning, longing for what it had not. Longing for what it had not. His, what he's basically saying is she should have had this great welcome. 
Instead, there's nothing there. And it makes him angrier because you know that he puts all of his stress on appearances, decorum, what's the, like, you know, a grand procession. I mean, something to mark her. Um, those are just a few of the sorts of things that I'm talking about. The other thing that's like that, that takes another form, is what I'm calling um, withdrawals. So we have absences on the one hand, and let me just, the, the most important, let me, let me get to here. Act 3, scene 10. This is when the wars between Anthony and Cleopatra, Cleopatra and Caesar start. And you know Anthony fights Caesar at sea and loses. Cleopatra turns and follows her. Act 3, scene 10, Enobarbus and Canidius are both talking and they're, they're beginning to be ashamed of their leader because of what he just did. And Canidius says, to Caesar will I render my legions and my horse, six kings already show me the way of yielding. He's absenting himself, he's withdrawing, he's not there anymore. His attachments go from Anthony to Caesar. Um, Anthony, Act 3, Scene 11, after his first defeat, he says, Hark, the land bids me tread no more upon it. It is a shame to bear me. Friends, come hither. I am so lated in the world that I have lost my way forever. The place that he had before is gone. I have a ship laden with gold. Take it, divide it, fly, and make your peace with Caesar. I have fled myself. Who he was at once is gone, absent. He's no longer there. I'm assuming most of us, and in some degree, maybe not this much, but I'm assuming all of us or most of us have had moments when everything, everything we put our trust in seems illusory, that we reach points where we realize this is what I've done, this is, you know, and you realize that who you thought you were, you're not. That in spite of whatever great accomplishments you make, you, you realize there, there has to be more. That's all I did, that there's, we come to see that whatever value we held on ourselves gets lost. Uh, that our job, our family, whatever it is. Anthony's in that place, this, this isolation and loneliness that's so typical of the tragic hero. Friends, be gone. I have myself resolved upon a course which has no need of you, be gone, my treasure's in the harbor, take it, oh. Um, he's mutinied against himself. Now, Enobarbus um, um, begins to get to ready himself to, to, to leave to Act 3, scene 13, about line 20, he says, I see men's judgments are a parcel of their fortunes and things outward do draw the inward quality after them to suffer all alike. That he should dream knowing all measures, the full Caesar will answer his emptiness. He has nothing with which to fight. I could go on and on. Um, when he loses again, Enobarba says, Act 3, scene 13, about line 200, now he'll outstare nature, outstare the lightning to be furious is to be frighted out of fear, and in that mood the dove will peck the cartridge. And I see still a diminution in our captain's brain. It's going. 
Restore his heart when valor preys on reason, it eats the sword it fights with. I will seek some way to leave him. That to me is the most heartbreaking of the departures because Enobarbus has been a great soldier. He's been a companion, he's supported. He would die for Anthony, he loves him. But he's watching the man that he loved lose himself. He's gonna, he's gonna find a way to leave him now. Now you know what happens, he leaves in the next battle and act four, scene three, during this episode when the night before the next battle, there's this description of Anthony's God leaving. Did we read that? Act four, scene three, line 13. The guards are on watch. They're, they're, they know the next battle may be their last, they're not sure. They're complimenting themselves to a brave army and full of purpose. And then suddenly the, the guards hear an oboe playing music underneath the stage. Music in the air, under the earth, line 13. It signs well, does it not? No, peace I say, what should this mean? Tis the god Hercules whom Anthony loved now leaves him. This is crucial. People are gonna pass over this. This is Hercules, this is the great pagan god. If you know Hercules, you know that he's one of the greatest heroes of the ancient world. He performed all these great tasks. What does it mean for Hercules to be leading Anthony? And why now? The strength and the... That Anthony, Anthony was compared to Hercules. So Hercules is leading him. That strength and that whatever he had is... He doesn't have it anymore. So let me ask this. In terms of the Roman world, this is an absence. Right? Gone. Hercules is leaving. Anthony seems to be losing himself. Is something else going on with Anthony that the Roman world does not know or understand? And if so, what is it? Is something happening between him and Cleopatra that marks a kind of love that the Roman world does not know? And if that's so, is Hercules leaving because another god is taking him place even if these people don't see him? Because if this apophatic is real, that Shakespeare's teaching us to see what's not there, then the question is, is something going on between the love, this man and woman, that the Romans are, what, what, when Christ came into the world, what was people's response to him? Except for a small group of Jews, make fun, mock, and the stations of the cross, they are spitting on him, making fun of him. Did they see the nature of that love? Absolutely not. How many Romans, if their value, if their word value is success, power, prestige, control, and Anthony and Cleopatra have stepped outside of that world, how many of those Romans are going to see that for what it is? Does he name it? No, it's apophatic. Either it means this God is gone and that's all and Anthony's lost, or it could also mean something's happening that Anthony and Cleopatra don't even perfectly understand and the cultures they live in, Egyptian and Roman, don't understand it either. Is Shakespeare showing us something that's not there? Are you all following? Remember the opening lines, I love you. Did we hear it? The only way we know it is by its absence. When I think about the implications of this for our faith, I'm not kidding. How often do we trust on something appearing the way we want it because we don't have the eyes to see something when it's not there. When that's what faith is, I mean, to a large extent. Okay? So all of these withdrawals, 
Ina Barnes, the next, the next scene, it's one, to me it's one of the most heartbreaking moments in it. They go to war, Anthony's preparing, and he asks where Ina Barbas is. This is Act 4, Scene 5, about at the very end of Act 4, Scene 5. Go, Eros, send his treasure after it. Because he says, where's Ina Barbas? And he's told Ina Barbas is left to go to Caesar's side. Why? Because Caesar's, he expects him to be victorious. He's on the winning side. Who wants to choose the, who wants to choose the losing side in a battle? He goes to Caesar. Anthony finds out, and this is what he says, Act 4, Scene 5, at the end. Go, Eros, send his treasure after, do it, detain no jot, I charge thee. Write to him, I will subscribe, gentle, adieus, adieus. That's the, that's the word of a lover, you know, in the Renaissance, not in Rome. Um, gentle, adieus, and greetings. Say that I wish he never find more cause to change a master. Oh, my fortunes have corrupted honest men. He takes the whole thing on himself. It's got to be a crushing moment that he's let his soldier down. He's taking, he takes responsibility the way Helen did with Bertram. When Enobarbus gets the things, Act 4, Scene 6, he receives all of his belongings from Anthony. Now remember, th and the interesting thing here is, just when he receives them, Caesar loses. So on the wrong, he did this, he did this. I just think about Peter with Christ. And he did this because that's his world. He's going to go to the winning side and he gets there and Anthony sends him his stuff. And on that day, Caesar loses. All it does is deepen his sense of betrayal. That something's wrong with that world. He says, I am alone the villain of the earth and feel I am so most. O Anthony, thou mine of bounty, how wouldst thou have paid my better services when my turpitude thou dost so crown with gold? I betray you, and you give me gifts. This blows my heart. His swift thought break it not, a swifter mean shall outstrike thought. Thought won't compass this. Something, new heaven and new earth, something is entering here that the, Roman, the Romans have no way of, his heart is breaking, a new way of looking, a new way of feeling is taking people over. If swift thought break it not, a swifter mean shall outstrike thought, but thought will do it. I feel I fight against thee. He's gonna fight against Anthony, the man he's loved. No, I will go seek some ditch where to die. The foulest best fits my latter part of life. You know, in the next scene, act, act four, scene nine, he go finds this ditch. O sovereign mistress of true melancholy, the poisonous damp night, the sponge upon me, that life of very rebel to my will may hang no longer on me. He doesn't want to hold his body. It's like he's betrayed himself. He, like Anthony, he's, he's not, he, how do we even put this? Could, could Edo Barbas have imagined earlier in his life, you know, when, when the Romans started, ever being in this situation with the man that he loved? Is he the same man at all? Does he have any way of understanding where he is? Who? You know, Barbas. Is everybody following? Is, I mean, everything Roman in him has been destroyed right now. It, it couldn't hold him. He was on the winning side. He went to, on the, he loved Anthony. He goes to Caesar. It's the winning side. Caesar lose, and Anthony's good to him. Um, I mean, 
how does he how does he square that with his life as a Roman? Well, he, what kind of a hero does things like that? I mean, like what? Talking about Hercules and uh, Mark Antony emulated Hercules earlier, but uh, what kind of hero would have a friend betray him and he lavishes gifts on him right. uh, afterwards? Right. And, uh, uh, so yeah, he must have destroyed. Yeah. Yeah. What, you know. The one thing that I want to underscore here is that is, remember, this is a world in which valor and strength and power are valued above all things, not the human heart. There's no way to look at this scene and not see the human heart is crushed because the human heart has become greater than male strength, power, you know, all, all that defines Caesar and what he does. Oh, Antony, nobler, nobler than my revolt is infamous. Forgive me in thy own particular, but let the world rank me and register a master lever and a fugitive. Oh, Antony, oh, Antony. He dies from a broken heart. This is a Roman soldier. These things don't happen in Rome. Okay? Um, I want to go over just quickly um, to get to the end. Are you all following... Um, after the third battle, when um, Cleopatra turns again, Anthony comes. He's ready to kill her this time. He's so furious with her. And he, he's outraged. And once again, he says, he, um, in fact, this is a line I want you to see too. Um, Act 4, scene 14. Um, Act for scene 14, about line 15. My good knave Eros, now thy captain is even such a body. Here I am, Anthony, yet cannot, yet cannot hold this visible shape, my knave. His body no longer defines him. Is everybody following? Remember when he lost the first battle, he said, the earth will not hold me anymore. Now after this third battle, when he's defeated again, he says, the shape cannot hold me. I made thou wars for Egypt and queen, whose heart I thought I had, for she had mine, which while it was mine, had annexed unto it million more, now lost, everything gone. It's like Christ coming into the world and going to a cross and saying, um, even though you don't know it, everything that you valued is gonna be lost. There's something else. Does Anthony know that? Absolutely not, he's not Christian. But everything about him says, I'm not who I am, even my body, yet cannot hold this visible shape. Um, he, he's ashamed of himself. Um, he's furious at Cleopatra. She sends news to him that she's dead. And you know that he wants to kill himself after that. He asks Eros to kill him. And Eros, by this is extraordinary, Eros is Roman. That's his duty. When he became Anthony's soldier, he knew, I mean, he makes that clear in the exchange, that when I first took you on, you know that you might have to come to this point. That's settled. Now he's at that point, and Anthony says, you knew this, now do it. His name is Eros. He says, take my life. And Anthony gets ready for the sword thrust, and the next thing he discovers is Eros kills himself because he says, God, he did not want to see this captain killed, the man he loved. Anthony, so Anthony's already feeling shamed with everything he's done, and now he has to add one more shame. 
that he didn't have the courage to take his life because this man loved him so much that he would not be the instrument of it. We are, we are, are is everybody following? We are getting farther and farther away from this Roman world and the values that define it. Something's happening. Does the world see it? It's absent. It won't be there for another 20 years. But, say, Jupiter, sorry, go ahead. Well, because I keep thinking, why are they so down on themselves? Why are they going through, you know, this love that turns into despair and fear and anger and sorrow instead of going the high road? But it's because Jesus hasn't come into the world yet, so they don't have anything. They don't know it. They have no hope. The whole world of values as they know it is collapsing, it's turning. If, I mean, think about it. If Anthony and Eros and others had been in a battle by themselves and Cleopatra were out of it on a battlefield, would they be doing this? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Did you have a question? I want to go to the end really quickly because you know what happens. That he, he tried, this is, here it is again. Here it is again. This is, God, it just amazes me. Um, Eros is dead. Eros, love, killed himself. Anthony looks at it and he's ashamed of himself again. Here's a man who had the courage to do it, and I know. He tries to take his life and he botches it. Now, some people can see this as a parody. That's one way of looking at this event. There's also another way. What is it? He botches it. He's destined to see Cleopatra He's not himself. This is the, what, the greatest foot soldier in the world right now. He can't take his own life. Something's wrong. So over and over and over again, Shakespeare is showing that this is Plato's cave. Even though things appear this way, because that's we're in a Roman world, there's a different meaning. Or at least that's what I'm suggesting. No. Um, here, go to the end. Um, you know that he finally dies. Cleopatra goes to get her, she has him brought to the tower, and they're there, and he dies in her arms. Um, on Act 5, Scene 2, Caesar is the conqueror now, and um, um, Proculius comes to her to watch over her because Caesar knows it's, it's uh, likely that she will take her own life rather than be led in triumph into Rome. And she, in fact, learns that later. So we know that he wants her because she will be a signature trophy of his triumph. He wants to parade her through Rome as a way of displaying his own glory. Um, she says, Act 5, Scene 2, Sir, I will eat no meat, I will not drink. If idle talk will once be necessary, I will not sleep. The mortal house I'll room to Caesar what he can. She's not going to let him have her. No, sir, remember, and this is the woman she went to bed with Pompey before she went to Caesar's. She went to bed with Caesar. She had um, a son by Julius Caesar. So she slept with lots of men. She's a clever, cunning woman. We know that from the beginning. She has her way. She manipulates everybody. She's a very selfish woman. She's had her way all along. Um, and she's saying right now, this body's not going to hold me. I, I'm not going to let that man do this, is basically what she's saying. Shall they hoist me up and show me to the shouting Valerie? Uh, 
voluntary of, of censuring Rome because they're going to do nothing but put her down. Rather, a ditch in Egypt be gentle grave unto me. So she would rather die than, than be used by him. It's at this point that she describes that dream she has of Anthony. Now here's the question, because I've said it before. Um, is this just a tragedy because it marks the fall of a man and woman because they were stupid in what they did? They gave in to their passions, which is one way of looking at it. Or has something transcendent entered this world? Is something... This is the question that I asked a couple of weeks ago that I've been wanting. Was, what was God doing before Christ came into the world? Was God not active before Christ came? Is there, if, 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 the, if Christ is the Son and the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were always there and they were looking over their children, how could they do otherwise from what we know? That, was, was the Son not active in what was going on? Was, was Christ, before he came Christ, I mean he's the Son before that. What was God doing before Christ came into the world? Is something happening here that Shakespeare, as a poet, helps us to see when the people of that time could not have seen. Could a Roman historian have done this play this way? No. Absolutely not. Cleopatra has this dream the night before she will take her life. She's saying to Dolabella, she had a dream, this is Act 5, Scene 2, about 80, and he's going, hush, hush, because he thinks she's losing it. <laughs> she's going to talk about a dream. It's really, that happens again and again in Shakespeare. The, 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 the sort of sane people have sane answers. You know, don't get yourself worked up. When we have to ask, either she's losing it, or something transcendent is, has entered her life. And Egypt doesn't define her, Rome doesn't define her anymore. She says, she saw, she had a dream, I dreamt there was an emperor, Anthony, an emperor, of such another sleep. So either a modern psychologist could say, delusory, delusionary, what's the word, delusionary, um, psychotic, I mean, whatever psychological name you can give it, what she's doing is a disorder, it's an, ab it's an abnormality. Um, his face, no, of such another sleep that I might hear, but such another man, if it might please you, he wants to quiet her. His face was as the heavens, and therein struck a sun and moon, which kept their course and lighted the little below the earth. Most sovereign creature, said quiet, quiet, his legs withstood the ocean, his reared arm crested the world, his voice was property as all the tumid spheres, and that to friends. But when he meant to quail and shake the orb, he was as rattling thunder, as anger that he could have. For his bounty there was no winter in it, and autumn was that grew the more by reaping. Right? The more it ended, the more it grew. His delights were dolphin-like. I showed they back above the elements they lived in. In his livery walked crowns and crownettes, realms and islands were as plates dropped from his pocket. Cleopatra, wake up. She goes on. Um, one last thing, and then I want to get to the end. Act 5, scene 2. She's talking to, to Dio, Dola, um, Dolabella again, who has told her, he's, remember, he's Caesar's. He's told her what Caesar will do to her in the next several days, that he will walk her on this march back to Rome. 
Um, she would have known that already. And then he leaves, and she says this to Iris about line 200 to 210. Um, she, you, Cleopatra's imagining Rome and what will be her reception in Rome if she's allowed Caesar to take her. Cleopatra says, Nay, this most certain, Iris. Saucy lictors will catch at us like strumpets and scald rhymers, bad poets. Ballad out of tune, ballad us out of tune. <laughs> God, that's extraordinary. Ballad us out of tune. These bad poets will render us in ways that are not faithful to who we really are. They won't. Can a Roman poet do justice to what has just taken? They will look at this as a mockery and scandal, a drunk, a whore. The quick comedians extemporarily will stage us and present our Alexandrian rebels. Anthony shall be brought drunken forth, and I shall see some squeaking Cleopatra boy my greatness in the posture of a whore. That is, he will take away her sex. He will boy her. So we're seeing what Romans will do. The, the problem here is that we've seen aspects of their character, that both of them have gone through this tragic moment, they've recognized, they've lost their identity, they've entered a world that, that they would not have known before, that the Romans don't know, and she's now picturing what will happen if she goes back. And she's, I mean, the lines to me are extraordinary. Some Cleopatra will boy my greatness, they'll unsex her. She says that in her last words, and notice how both imperial, she's a queen, and transcendent both. Her last words. She says to um, her maids about lying 280, give me my robe, put on my crown, I have immortal longings in me. Um, now no more the juice of Egypt's grape shall moist this lip. She separated. Yer, yer, good Iris, quick, methinks I hear Anthony call. I see him rouse himself to praise the noble act. I hear him mock the luck of Caesar, which the gods give men to excuse their after wrath. Husband, remember, she's never married in a way that with Caesar or Pompey. Husband, I come. Now to that name, my courage, prove my title. I am fire and air. Remember, in, the, in the, that time, the four elements that define our nature were fire, air, earth, water. So she's not of earth, water. She's of the ephemeral, fire and air. I'm fire and air. My other elements I give to base her life. So have you done? Come then and take the last warmth of my lips. Farewell, kind Charmian. Iris, long farewell. She kisses them, and on the kiss, Iris dies. It's a broken heart. This is exact counterpart to what happened with Enobarbus. She kisses her and she dies. Um, and then you know what happens. Um, Charmian will take the asp and put it to herself and she'll die too. Okay, here's my question. Quick before we... How do we look at the whole? This is a tragedy. Um, Shakespeare's Catholic, I'm assuming. Shakespeare's Catholic. He has a sense of transcendent things the Roman world would never have known. He's looking back at a time when they didn't know Christ, they didn't know the Trinity. Uh, their whole way of presenting it. it would have been like a modern Whig historian presenting history in terms of the winning side. That's what Whig historians do. Truly, if you've read history, you know. That's the his Whig historian view of history. They, 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 it's, what, it's what Henry did in the Tudor court, you know, that Shakespeare was living in. 
Um, would, a, would a historian at the time, or a poet, a Roman poet, would he have been able to render a play like this? And I'm, I'm, I'm urging this with, in, in, in hoping you'll keep two things in mind. One is, at the Caesar level of the plot, there's nothing but fights. The wars will go on. Wars always will. Can a human being bring universal peace that's lasting to our world? Because if he could, we wouldn't have needed Christ. We would not have needed God. Could a Roman poet have done this? The way Shakespeare, the, these departures, these withdrawals, this, these broken hearts, these things that don't fit this world. So when, when, if we look at this as a tragedy, again, remember that the tragic arc is good fortune to bad, but there's a moment of recognition, a turn towards an ending. Is, do we look at Anthony and Cleopatra as a, as a playboy and a whore? Or is something happening that, that relates us to an other order in time just before something's about to end the world? What's going on with this play? Is everybody following? I hope what this is doing is sort of shaking up your view of tragedy if nothing else, because most people think of tragedies as bad things. Tragedies have to do with um, bad things. Every tragedy has to do with some bad, every one. But in every tragedy, every good tragedy, that bad is answered. There's always a good greater than that bad at work in the world. That's why tragedies end with a resolution. And it seems to me if we read this play, it's hard not to feel that, that the, this Roman and Egyptian, something happened to them that, um, I mean, the spiritual cost of it for both of them to lose their identities with the world, Anthony with Rome, Cleopatra with Egypt, to, to have no way to understand that at their time. Um, the, my argument, let me put this short because we're past time, my argument that is a, that is a grace is entering this world. They don't understand it. It's changing. They have no way of relating to it by their world. None. So we either look at the two of them as the way the Romans will look at them. Anthony's a play, I can't remember the word, but and she's a tramp who will be buoyed out of her <laughs> her sex. That um, that something extraordinary is happening that only a Christian could see. So what he's in some sense doing is showing God at work when people couldn't see what he was doing. So he's doing it as a poet, something only a poet could have done who lived after Christ. Going back and looking at the world. He's teaching us to see something that was absent, something that other people didn't see. Let me leave just a couple moments for questions. you guys have any questions about and I would say, if we carried this on, that go back over Othello, reread Othello, go back and look at um, uh, Merchant of Venice and um, All's Well, because you've got a, a sense of comedy and tragedy now that I'm assuming you wouldn't have had, you know, two months ago, and and you're hopefully you're seeing, hopefully I've made clear that there's something more going at work in these plays that um, it's important for us to see. This is a little off topic, but how, or do you know how they, in those days, how did they change your sex, or take your sex away from you? Change the sex? That's what you said, the 
Yeah, well, what Cleopatra's saying, here, go back to that line. Um, the, the quick comedians, that is the poets at that time, the tragedians and the comedians, extemporarily will stage us and present us. That is, when they do a play to, to show Caesar victorious, I mean, that's the way the world is, that this, this is the good side because they won, this is where the power, this is the right side. When they do that, they'll, they'll present Caesar as the great conqueror. When they present Anthony, Anthony shall be brought drunken forth, he'll be presented as a drunk. So on the stage, when they do the play in Rome, Anthony will, I mean, they'll mock him. They'll probably present him as this strong soldier tripping over himself, drinking, you know. And when they present Cleopatra, and I shall see some squeaking Cleopatra, boy, my greatness, what a lovely line. That is, they'll unsex her. They'll just, they, they will not do justice to her sexuality. I mean, we've been made, anybody reading this closely, you can't read this. Remember Eno Barbas's line when, um, when he's describing Cleopatra to the other soldier because he's seen her and all these soldiers have, have this is act two, scene two, about 200. Um, I saw her once hop 40 pieces through the public street and having lost her breath, there's, a, there's that withdrawal. She spoke and panted that she did make defect perfection and breathless power breathe forth. Breathless power breathe when she's worn out. The, the soldier says now Anthony must leave her utterly because if she's as sexy as you think she is, he needs to get away from her. I mean, there's a Roman. What else could he say? I mean, that's the right thing for a Roman. Enobarbus, never he will not. Age cannot wither her, nor custom stale her infinite variety. Other women cloy the appetites they feed, but she makes hungry where most she satisfies. For vilest things become themselves in her, that the holy priests bless her when she's riggish. How is a Roman poet going to do any justice to that woman the way Unabarbus describes her? Do you follow me? And the actor who would play her. Pardon me? And the actor who would play her in Rome if they took her back to Rome and they put on this comedy, the actor who would play her would be a young boy. So he, well, wouldn't, have, he wouldn't have any way of, of projecting who she is as a woman. All the actors would have been saying. men. Okay. I thought it was a physical thing that they did. No. No. No, it's no. just. Any questions about tragedy and comedy? Because we're about ready to wind up. We are winding up Shakespeare. And what I tried to present when I thought about starting this with you guys is just to get us into the modern world, you know, looking forward. Merchant of Venice, Othello. All's well belongs there. but. But it would be good to have gone back to an old world before Christ came in. So we went back. It's all Renaissance. It's Shakespeare as a poet looking back. Because now we're going to go back to that world. So we're, we're, at, a, we're at a threshold here. Any questions about Anthony and Cleopatra or what we've been doing? And, because we're going to leave this world. We're going to go back to a mythic world with epics. And um, I'm going to be asking some of the same questions. You know, Where's God? What's going on? What are we learning? And so, nothing from the teachers. 
I can't imagine how you would teach this stuff to so many in high school, you know, we've done this, that you'd have your hands full. Because, you know, over and over again, the people in the class, they're all older like we are. You know, and they said, I remember reading Scarlet Letter in high school, and I'd say, I can't remember it. Who of us ever reads this stuff when we're in high school? The job that you guys have to me, I'm not kidding, I'm not kidding, I just. I, I just taught Hawthorne, but I taught it by um, introducing them to the short stories. Yeah. Um, and they really, they really enjoyed them and got a lot out of them. Are you going to go on and do Scarlet Letter? Um, not this year. Yeah. But most of our homeschool kids, they're pretty well read, and so. Yeah, I have that sense, yeah. These, yeah, they do read the Scarlet Letter. And a lot of them have, about half of the students in my class have read the Scarlet Letter, but no one had heard of the short stories. And so that was a. They are really great. They really are good. What short stories are, are you doing? Um, we did the Minister's Black Veil, and they got a kick out of that because I showed up with a veil on, and they were like. <laughs> You just confirmed that you were the bad guy all along anyway. <laughs> well, I was trying to get across to them how odd it would be. I was trying to show them like how, you know, if, if your minister, your pastor, you turn to right. every day right. were to suddenly veil yeah. all the time where you couldn't see his face, yeah. how that would affect you. My suggestion would be that you do uh, Young Goodman Brown. Do oh, good. Yes. Because that to me, I think that's, by the way, at the center of Scarlet Letter, that when you reach a point when you learn to see that there's sin in other people, it is a real trial on your faith. Um, and he just, he goes square directly at that in that story. And Anyway, good for you. Good for you. And then we did Heidegger's Experiment and we did um, uh, Rappuccini's Daughter. Wow, good for the kids. Good for the kids. I have a question yeah. about our whole view of this play. Uh, just to ask you, that if, if you were not looking at Anthony and Cleopatra from a perspective of prophecy, um, would you be, you know, after reading it, uh, if I weren't looking at, at it for prophecy, would I be studying it from a perspective of East versus West or uh, the the uh, super capable, powerful Roman uh, persona versus the Eastern yep. influence that grabs Anthony and he, it, it, it kind of sucks the life out of him. He, he finds all of his weaknesses mm -hmm. in his love for Cleopatra yeah. because there was one moment in the battle scene that struck me. It was, I can't remember who encountered uh, Caesar. And Caesar says, welcomes him into the camp and said, come on into my tent. Let me show you how well I've kept up on my diaries in the midst of the battle here. And he's just, he's, he's such a braggart. It's, he's, uh, to, to say that, oh, I can keep up, a, I can right. continue a battle at the same right. time, I'm keeping right. up my diaries. Right. Yeah. I think you've actually described it yourself. Um, it, it seems to me, if somebody didn't believe in God, I don't think they'd see these things at all, first of all. I mean, that's the easy answer. I think moderns who, are, who have an education behind them, this is, so I'm um, speculating here. This is all pure speculation. But lots of moderns would look at it in terms of political struggles, Marx, I mean, it would be class struggles or they, they, would, they would get Marx out of it. Feminists, 
would like to look at it in terms of, say, male oppression with Caesar and what would happen and her reasons for doing what she does. Freudians would look at it because obviously they begin with different theories. So the easy answer to your question is people very often, that's why it's interesting you'd say that, people very often read for what they're looking for. They, they, they read for their own ideas. So if you're a Marxist starting, you're going to look at it in theoretical terms of Marx. If you're Freudian, you're going, to, you're going to start with that framework and you're going to find it. If you're a feminist, you're going to do that. What, if you remember, I mean, I'm trying to do this and I'm, I hope everybody, I mean, I, I'm glad for anybody calling me on my readings because I take this seriously. I don't believe I'm reading into anything. I'm trying to show what I've learned to see that's there. If somebody were a Christian, I don't think he'd see these things at all because he'd begin with a different kind of mindset. I'm trying to do justice to this play as I believe it's written. And with my sense of Shakespeare and the, tr the whole tradition of drama or lyric or when we get to narratives, we're gonna start, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna do the Iliad and the Odyssey, the Aeneid, we're gonna look at narratives. And I'm gonna do everything I can to present those narratives as I believe they are in their own terms. So let me give you an example. When, when and this is a college, in one of the last years that I was at UD, I was teaching the Iliad one day, and, and you'll see next week when we start, all the epics begin with an epic poet invoking muses. It's in medias race, in the midst of things. And um, so the poet begins by invoking divine help. And I said to the class, is this just a convention or is it real? The greater part of the class, and they were mostly Catholic kids, said, of course it's a convention. It's just a technical convention. The idea that a poet would invoke help from the gods was absolutely beyond their... So if you go into it with certain assumptions, you're going you're to read the play that way. Um, there's lots of evidence in the book that suggests that's not a convention, that, that Homer was absolutely serious about what he was doing with the Iliad and the Odyssey. Um, and he believed it, that he, that, that he couldn't tell that story without divine help. But the modern take on it is if you, if you look in the book of literary terms or listen to modern scholars, they'll say that in, invocation, that's the beginning of the epic, invocation, you invoke the gods, that's a technical device. That's all they'll see. So, I mean, it's hard to answer that question because um, most people will find in any work what they start with. So if you're a feminist, you're going to read it and find that there. If you're a Marxist, you'll read it. Or I'm, trying, I'm trying to present these works that in a way that's faithful to what Thomas says. We have to see what's there. And um, I'm, I'm trying to stay in the text as much as I can so that, so that you see that, that it's there, that I'm not reading this into it, that we have to make sense of this stuff. That's why every once in a while I'll step back and give you the tragic paradigm. Because if you don't understand tragedy, you come with certain assumptions, then you're likely to miss some things. So part of what's going on here, whether anybody feels it or not, is that you're entering a tradition, happens to be literature in this case, and, and learning that there's something poets have given us that I believe is extraordinary. Hawthorne's not a, he's not espousing anything explicitly, 
but his view, I'm just, just stunned reading him right now. What he, what he helps us to see about sin and grace and what's peculiar about the American character, and I, I believe it was true then, I believe it's true now, it's extraordinary. What he and Melville did to me was extraordinary. Um, I don't think I'm, in, I won't, when, if we ever get to start a letter, I'm not going to be imposing. I mean, I'm, I'm going to be pointing out things that are right there in the text, and I'm sure a lot of you are going to go, yes, that's, you know, when Hester does this, when Dimsdale does this, or Hawthorne says this, you'll, it's right there. Same true with, I mean, that, I take that really seriously myself. I don't, I don't want to make a claim for Othello or Helena, you know, that I don't believe the text does, doesn't warrant. Um, anyway, epics. Are you guys ready? This band is getting smaller and smaller. <laughs> that means you are either really foolish or foolish and brave. And I mean that, I mean that sincerely. Um, good, I'm, I'm glad you asked it. Um, my, my plan, I'm glad. Just like a teacher. I'm glad, by the way, I'm glad for any of you teaching about us. When I came in today, it was probably two minutes to seven and Mary was going. <laughs> the board was still white. Mary's going. <laughs> She's hired. You are hired in my mind. Anyway, what, I, what I'd like to do with the Iliad is try to cover eight books a week. It's not too much. Eight books a week. Um, I think we can manage. And by the way, let me just say this. I, I don't...